This is the message given by Pastor James Lim during the evening worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for December 10th, 2023. The title of the message is Wonderful Works of God. This evening we uh, we were taking a break from our uh, normal series through the, through the Proverbs. I thought we'd just take a break uh, towards the end of the year. And if you would... Uh, Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 9. Last week we looked at Psalm 8, or sorry, the week before we looked at Psalm 8. This week we'll look at Psalm 9. Uh, Being a longer psalm, I uh, will do my best to really summarize uh, uh, chunks of this passage the best I can and uh, and really apply it. But um, normally I probably would break this up into two but uh, I thought I'd try uh, to go through the whole psalm and not take too much time, but still do it justice the best I can. So pray for me. Hear now the reading of God's holy word, beginning in verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them have perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. He be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid their own foot has, that they hid their own foot has been caught the lord has made himself known he has executed judgment the wicked are snared in the work of their own hands hegeon salah the wicked shall return to sheol all the nations that forget god for the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall perish forever Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Salah. The reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it this evening. Worship is one of the most important things uh, any person can do. In fact, it is the reason for which God created us. He made us to have fellowship with him, and in doing so, we worship him. We worship him as we enjoy 
uh, fellowship with him, as we enjoy who he is, what he has done for us, as we enjoy that deep, intimate communion and union with him as those made in his image, as well as those who have been redeemed uh, into his family. There are a multitude of reasons for which we worship him. There's, uh, we worship him because he exists uh, in his being, simply because he is God. And then there's his attributes and character. And so we worship him uh, for, for who he is in his, in his being, right? And he is being infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being and in his character now. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, uh, which we see in a nice summary in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four. And we see this uh, written out and described throughout Scripture, that the Lord is righteous, the Lord is holy, the Lord is good, uh, the Lord is, is sovereign, the Lord is almighty. And so we worship him for those characters, for those uh, attributes. And then we also worship him for his works, right? What he has done in creation and providence and in redemption uh, in our lives, right? Uh, he made the universe, spoke it into being. He, he unfolds the decrees uh, which he gave from before the foundation of the world and unfolds them moment by moment, atom by atom, uh, from the beginning of the world and then all the way to the end. And what's beautiful is that you and I are a part of that unfolding plan of God, uh, that he is so sovereign in all that he does. He numbers the hairs on our heads. I mean, you know, for some people it's easier than others. Right? But, I mean, if you, if you have a lot of hair, you, can't, you don't normally count them. But God knows exactly how many there are. Uh, and he will not even let one of them fall without his divine permission. What an amazing thing that is. It is this God who keeps you and holds you. Uh, whatever may happen, he's always with you. That's worthy of our praise. And then that, then that doesn't even begin to touch uh, the works of his redemption, uh, the salvation that he promises it's from the beginning, the very beginning, Genesis 3.15. That's what we've been looking at in our morning series through the Advent. Uh, the promise of a son, Genesis 3.15. The son of Abraham, Genesis 21. That God's unfolding plan of redemption is being executed uh, from the, the Old Testament law, the prophets, the writings, you know, that, that a son will come uh, in our humanity to take our sins. He will be the suffering servant, smitten, uh, uh, stricken, and afflicted, uh, who, was, who, who received the punishment that we deserve so that through his stripes we are healed climaxing in the coming of Christ, born in a manger, a weak, frail, humble baby, made like us in every way, yet without sin. And then he would walk the earth for 33 years and do his ministry 
to be righteous in all that he does, to fulfill the righteousness of the law in our place, that which we could not do, so that he might be a good and perfect sacrifice to hang upon the cross, to bear the wrath of God, so that we might receive the forgiveness of sins, that our debt would be paid once and for all, that we would be accepted as righteous in his sight, because by faith we have uh, that righteousness imputed to us, because he had our unrighteousness imputed to him, and so he suffered. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that so that God would not forsake us. And then he rose from the grave after three days, to show that God received that act of sacrifice uh, so that Jesus then, empowered by the the glory of the resurrection life, the indestructible life in the priesthood of Melchizedek, now he gives to all those who trust in him by faith. It is those wonderful things by which we worship the Lord. And here in Psalm 9, we see glimpses of of all of these ways in which we worship the Lord uh, here. And so tonight I want us to consider uh, some of these ways, these reasons to worship him uh, as we go through this psalm. First, the psalmist sets up the whole foundation Uh, for our worship of God that is grounded in the wonderful works of the Lord. See, we're going going to worship him for what he has done. He tells us how to worship the Lord by giving thanks with our whole hearts. That's what worship is. Worship is being grateful and thankful to the Lord, not simply as an outward act, you know, going through the motions, but it's something we experience and we know and we are grateful for from the depths of our heart, right? So we worship from the heart, with the heart, deep down in the heart, with our whole hearts, right? And and so that's why the Puritans used to call Christianity a religion of the heart. Whereas when you think about... uh, other religions, as well as, you know, for example, the Roman Catholic Church. You don't have to believe from the heart. You just need to implicitly trust in the Catholic Church, for example, and you are just as if, uh, like any other believer. But that's not the case for which the Bible actually teaches that if you want to worship the Lord, you have to worship him from your own heart. And not merely externally, like a hypocrite, right? Uh, What did the Lord say? He says um, uh, that you are all, that he tells the the Pharisees, you know, you're hypocrites. You you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me, right? But true worship is gratitude from the heart of all the things that the Lord has done. This is also reminiscent of, Uh, here in in the first several verses of of Psalm 9. That worship is also a part of that great commandment, right? To love God with all of your, what? Heart. And so he tells us then, 
why we ought to worship. Look at what he goes on to say. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. That's, that's really what it means to, to thank the Lord, is to tell the world, uh, to sing back to or proclaim back to God all that he has done as an act of gratitude uh, from the depths of our heart. Secondly, the psalmist tells us what these wonderful works comprise of and how we ought to recount them in praise. Look at verse 3. He, he will fight for us and turn our enemies back. Right? He will maintain our just cause because he sits on the throne uh, proclaiming, giving his righteous judgments. And this is important because it reminds us how God is unlike the unjust kings of the world that he rebukes the nations and makes the wicked perish. He blots them out forever and ever here in these verses. And this is interesting because I think the psalmist is implying not just the only not only the just nature of God's judgments but the finality, the eternality of it. The hope of God's justice is that God would curse the wicked to execute justice, uh, and he would then bless the righteous. And over and over throughout the Old Testament, uh, this is interesting because over and over throughout the Old Testament, we see that it seems like the, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And so when we see, we know instinctively that when the wicked are are punished for their wickedness and the righteous are vindicated for for doing right we celebrate that we celebrate that there's a reason why when um guilt we know when the guilty are set free that it's unjust and the people know it and so they respond with such anger, just anger, but also sinful anger, you know, because then you, see, you have riots. Right? That's why when certain verdicts are about to be pr- pronounced, you know, in certain cities and they don't, and, pe- and, the, and the law enforcement doesn't know what that verdict is going to be, they're ready for a riot just in case that, that verdict is perceived as unjust. But... At the same time, when a verdict is pronounced and it is perceived and is seen as a just verdict, we celebrate, don't we? We celebrate. Uh, When Hitler committed suicide and and Nazi Germany uh, was was conquered uh, and that we were victorious, uh, we saw that as a verdict of justice uh, upon Hitler and the Third Reich. And so, you know, you have the, you know, all the stories of the ticker tape parades through, through, um, uh, through New York City and, and celebrations throughout the world. But here, the righteous, uh, the righteous are uplifted and God will punish the unrighteous. <clears throat> the 
This also points us to that theme in the scriptures, the, the theme in the scriptures where cities are dens of, of, of wickedness. And when God pronounces his judgment on the wicked, uh, cities are, are overturned. Cities perish and they're blotted out forever and ever and there are everlasting ruins Right? Look at what it says there in verse 6. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Right? We think of Jericho, Babylon, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Right? And this idea of God's just punishment upon the wicked, individually and in cities, points us to the gospel in two ways. One... God is going to return and judge the world. This language of judging the world in righteousness uh, is later on taken up with Jesus who will return. Jesus is going to be the judge of all the earth and he will judge the world with righteousness, justice, and equity. Secondly, uh, it, it reminds us that God is just, but he's also merciful. And in the gospel, in the gospel, this is how God forgives uh, sinners. This is how God justifies the wicked in the language of, of Romans, uh, according to Paul. That God justly punishes our sins by pouring out his wrath on Jesus so that our sins are once and for all forgiven and we can be accepted as righteous so that on that great and final day of judgment, when, when the righteous will be uh, condemned or the righteous will be, will be uh, blessed and set apart in glory and then and the unrighteous, the unjust uh, given over and condemned to eternal punishment in hell is that God can forgive us. We can stand righteous in God's sight, and God is still just. The Paul says he is the just and the justifier of sinners. The other truth is that God, the, the language here in verse uh, 5, 6, and 7 is illustrative of an eternal judgment. And so this is another example that whenever God punishes the wicked, he does it forever and ever. Eternal conscious torment of hell. And this is one of those doctrines that uh, I think our modern culture kind of see, yeah, you know, that's a little too much, you know. But think of it this way. If... An eternally holy God, if we sin and offend an eternally holy God, right, then the just punishment is an eternally holy wrath. You know, that uh, it's not dependent on, we don't see the, the, the proportionality of the punishment in itself. We see it, the pro proportionality of the punishment of the sin to the punishment based upon the dignity of the one that we offend. And this is what Jonathan Edwards 
uh, advocated in his uh, writings that uh, it's one thing, you know, for for someone to to slap a you know an everyday citizen, you know, and you get punished for it, right? Maybe you'll go to jail, or you have to pay a fine, but as you go up the ladder of dignity, say you slapped um, a police officer, that's even more, right? He has greater dignity than just, you know, kind of the regular Joe Schmo. But what if you slapped the mayor of your city, right? Even greater dignity. But what if you slapped the president of the United States? Uh, you would, your, the punishment would be proportional to the elevated dignity of the one you slap. So how much more then is the eternal uh, punishment that we deserve because of the eternal dignity of God whom we have offended through our sin? And so the Lord then, uh, look at verse seven, the Lord, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice uh, and, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people's with uprightness, and he will blot out their names forever and ever. Thirdly, the psalmist gives us the gracious side of praising the Lord, uh, who is our stronghold and refuge in times of trouble. Uh, Look at what he goes on to say there in verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. In the ancient Near East, strongholds were... Uh, fortresses, uh, walled cities that were meant to protect people from outsiders. So people lived within the walls of the city, but they also lived outside of the walls of the city. And when signals came from scouts from in the outskirts of the, of, the, of the kingdom that invaders were coming, then guess what would happen? Everyone outside of the walled city would come through the gates and come into the walled city, and then the walls, the gates would be closed and the people would be under the protection of that stronghold. The power and the protection of any given city in the ancient Near East was only as strong as their walls were thick. So the thicker, higher the walls, the greater, more protection that city uh, endowed upon its citizens. But notice here in verse 9 and 10, who is that stronghold, right? Who is that fortress, that walled city? It is the Lord. Here's the point. When we put our trust in the Lord, when, as we worship him, we worship him because he is our fortress. He is our walled city. If the power and the protection of any city is dependent upon its walls, then what, how greater is our protection and the power of God when God himself is the wall of the city in which we take shelter and refuge in? Right. And what's, uh, what's interesting here too as well is that connection that we see is the connection that we see to those who trust in his name. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. When, when the, 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 the signal, the warning is made and the people outside of the city come in, they can come in through the gates, but they have to be recognized as, as the rightful citizens who can be uh, 
brought in. And then later on, when they would close the gates and people from further out would come, then, then there was uh, a calling out to the guards of the gate to, to say, I am a citizen of this stronghold, let me in. And what they're doing is they're calling out uh, to the protection of the city, putting their faith and their trust uh, in calling that name out and then recognize, and they would open the gates and then the people would come in, right? The same happens when we put our trust and we call upon the name of the Lord to open wide your gates, Lord, so that we might come in and that we, you would be our refuge from all trouble, all trials, all enemies. And the way that we do that is we call upon the name of the Lord and we will be saved. One of the ways that I think this is helpful to us is that I don't think we take advantage. I don't think we take advantage of God as our fortress, as our stronghold, when we find ourselves in times of trouble. Uh, the first inclination, the first thing we do when we find ourselves in trouble is we try to take care of ourselves when we're in trouble. We don't, I think calling upon the name of the Lord is the last thing we do because we've tried everything else. But the act of worship and the act of faith that the psalmist is calling us to is to call upon the name of the Lord first, right? Those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And, and this kind of points us back to that idea that we see fulfilled in the New Testament, that uh, seek and you shall find. Knock and, and the door shall be opened. Ask and, and you, will, you will receive. Or, uh, or that the Lord uh, seeks those uh, worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, that Jesus comes then um, to seek those uh, who are lost and who need him. And that's what the Lord calls us to. Um, whenever you find yourself in need or in trouble, call upon the name of the Lord. Enter in through his gates and hide yourself and find refuge in him. And then fourthly, the psalmist calls us to rejoice in the Lord's salvation. We rejoice because he sits enthroned in Zion. We rejoice so we can tell the people of his deeds. We rejoice because he doesn't forget the cry of the, of the afflicted, including the psalmist here. And he rejoices as he recounts all that God has done in saving him. Uh, now, we don't know exactly what the salvation is referring to. This can, can refer to so many uh, uh, parts of David's life. Uh, but it might be from Goliath or Saul or Absalom, whatever the case may be, the Lord rescued the psalmist from the gates of death and gave him new life. And this is what he rejoices in. This is what he wants to tell among the people. This is another example then of the prophetic foreshadowing, not only of the true son of David, when, God, when he uh, uh, enters the gates of death and then he leaves the gate of death when he dies and rises again uh, from the grave. He does so then so that the nations might hear 
that the people who know this gospel can go and tell it among the nations. You see, when God does a work of redemption, when, when people die and rise again, and Jesus, it is a story that is meant to be told to all the world. And it is an act of worship. This is the mission, Old Testament missionary hope fulfilled in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This points us to the life of Christ uh, who was stricken and, and smitten and afflicted by his enemies for our sins, uh, that he died and rose again. And now he, for those who put their faith in him, those who are saved through his death and resurrection, he calls us to go and to tell it among the nations and to do that as an act of worship. And what this means then is that when we worship the Lord, when we worship the Lord, we are retelling that great story, whether it is through our prayers, through our singing, uh, through our hearing and preaching, uh, hearing uh, the, uh, the reading and preaching of God's word. Uh, even in our fellowship, uh, we, we are rehearsing and retelling the world what Jesus has done. That's why our... Uh, I love uh, the book by uh, Brian Chappell, uh, one, of, one of my, I, I feel like he's one of my teachers and mentors, although I I've never met him, but I love his books, is that he sees the worship service as a gospel-saturated service that tells a story from beginning to end of what God has done in Christ to save sinners uh, from their sins. Uh, and that's why, for example, we went through the reading of the law, the confession of sin, and the assurance of pardon, because it's part of that great story of salvation. And so when people come in, uh, they hear, and they, they hear as an act of worship, our witness to what Jesus has done. Um, and so this is what uh, Ed Clowney calls doxological evangelism. That whenever we worship the Lord, we're evangelizing. Not only to ourselves and to those around us, but to the whole world and those who come in. And so may we then worship the Lord uh, in all of these wonderful ways as we consider uh, the works of the Lord, uh, the justice of the Lord, uh, the salvation of the Lord, the protection of the Lord, so that the nations might know what the Lord has done. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the wonderful works that you have wrought. May we worship you for them and in them and through them so that the nations might know who you are, that they might call upon your name and be saved. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. 
Amen.